Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Uh, kids, you can be dismissed to the Gospel Project. And it's good to be sharing with you this morning on this holiday weekend. Uh, for those visiting, we're just getting started in the book of John. Uh, we're in John chapter 2, uh, and we find the first of Jesus' miracles, or signs, as the text calls it. And I, I wonder, as we look at this today, I wonder, what do you think of miracles? We'll encounter a lot of miracles as we go through the book of John. So, do you believe God is capable of miracles? And if so, what's the purpose? Why does he do them? So, we're going to read John chapter 2. Uh, you can find that, Alyssa, come on up here. You can find that on the, in the Bibles under your seats on page 517, John chapter 2. We're going to spend time considering this first miracle of Jesus, and you do need a mic. So this is Alyssa Grundler. She is a good friend, she and Brett and their kids, been part of our church for a long time, and Alyssa, please read for us. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone who serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Thank you. So, uh, friends, this is a real story, real events, real people. But I think we'll see that this, this kind of reads like a parable, one of Jesus' parables. There's lots of symbolism here. Uh, this really is a, a juicy passage. So lots of double meanings, uh, lots of under-the-surface stuff. So I think, think we'll find that as we get into this that we'll see the, the, uh, a glimpse of the real Jesus, who Jesus really is, what he came to do. So going to answer three questions about this passage. Uh, first is, what's going on in this passage? Second is, what does it mean? And then third, what do we do with it? So what's going on? What does it mean? And what do we do with it? So just to begin, let's admit that this is an odd passage. At least it is to me. Uh, I've, I've read or heard this dozens of times. I've, I've always thought it's a, a bit strange. Uh, so let me list out the odd things about it. So Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to Jesus with a strange statement. She says they have no wine. And really, it's, it's more of a request. She's requesting something. So what's, what's up with this request? Why is she coming to Jesus with this? Another oddity, Jesus' response to Mary. Now, I've never in my life called my mother woman. <laughs> so Jesus doesn't sin. So we have to understand this. This sounds kind of brusque. It sounds kind of rude. So what's, what's up with this? Why is Jesus referring to his wife, or to his mother, rather, as woman? 
Another, Jesus' response uh, to her is they have no wine. Or her, his response to her of they have no wine is that my hour has not yet come. So that's like someone telling me, uh, I have no gas in my car, and me responding to them, you know, I think I'm going to move to Montana. <laughs> Those two statements don't have anything to do with each other. And neither does they have no wine and my hour has not yet come. Or do they? Do they have something to do with each other? Mary's response is equally vexing. She says, do whatever he tells you. Now, how is that in any way a response to Jesus' previous statement? Another oddity, at least to me, is who is this master of the feast? I, I don't know about you, but I get this image of a guy wearing a bearskin, carrying a club, when I think of master of the beast. So what, what is up with him? And why is he so surprised by the wine, saving the best for last? Um, he's really moved by that. It's like an emotional experience for him when he sees that there's, there's good wine at the end. And then finally, and perhaps most important to consider, is that this is the first recorded sign or miracle of Jesus. To which I say, you've got to be kidding me. This, this is the first miracle of Jesus. Now, don't you think that if you were trying to start a movement of some importance, and you had the ability to do a miracle, wouldn't you choose some other miracle and in some other place? I certainly would. So let me just speak for a moment to those who maybe are struggling with the truth of Scripture. Uh, maybe you're here today, you're just checking out this Christianity thing. Uh, maybe you, you don't really believe in miracles. Uh, maybe you think that the Bible is uh, not true at all, or maybe you think that it's partially true, but it's been fictionalized. It's, it's got some parts that are true and some parts that have been embellished. Uh, maybe that's, that's the way uh, you think of things. But if you believe that, don't you think that the biblical writers would have come up with a, a more grandiose story for the first miracle of Jesus, such as Jesus heals a man lame from birth, or Jesus levitates a chariot, or Jesus makes clay pigeons come to life? You, know, you would think that they would make up something better than he turns water into wine. Water into wine is just some obscure family event. It's saving some, uh, a bride and a groom from, from some social embarrassment. Uh, that doesn't seem worthy of the Messiah. It's not even in Jerusalem with, with lots and lots of people around. It's in backwoods Cana, which would be the equivalent of Jesus coming to Clarkdale, Arizona and doing a miracle. Has anyone ever heard of Clarkdale, Arizona? One person, two or three people? Okay, that proves my point. So why else would this be in here? The fact that, that this is his first miracle. Why else would this be in here? Unless, of course, it's true. Unless it actually did happen. So what's going on with all this? Well, I think that we have to explain that weddings then were a bit different than they were now, uh, today. Uh, they were events that took place for much longer periods of time. They could go on for days and days. Basically, they were, they were a large party, and they wouldn't end until the wine ran out. And these weren't, uh, unless you think wrong of this, these weren't raging keggers. 
These were just social events with lots of talk and lots of celebration. That's why the master of the feast was surprised at saving the good wine for the last. Usually at these events, you'd bring out the good wine. So think $30 bottles, $50 bottles of wine. And then at the end, you'd bring out the box wine. Only, only the box wine that's been cut with water once or twice or three times to let the party continue to go on and on. Remember also, as, as Pastor Chuck talked about last week, that Jesus had just called his disciples. So this is not long after the disciples had started to follow him. And as we've heard, it was common for a rabbi, for a teacher, to have a lot of followers. And those followers might come and go, especially with a younger rabbi. So that rabbi had to prove himself over time, prove that he was worthy of being followed. So here's what we have here. We have the story of a, a normal wedding. There's nothing extraordinary about it that a new rabbi and his followers are attending. The rabbi's mother calls attention to a social faux pas. The rabbi makes an odd comment. The rabbi's mother makes another odd comment. Then there's a miracle, and the wedding continues. And, and this is the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Word made flesh. Makes perfect sense. Actually, it doesn't make perfect sense. So what does this mean? Uh, remember that I said that this was a, a juicy passage, a lot of symbolism here. So I used to think that this was just an odd story. This was just a strange thing. Uh, this is, you know, Jesus has his ways. His ways aren't my ways. I don't really understand. Uh, but this is just the way it is. So I just have to trust that there's some reason for turning water into wine and some reason that this is his first miracle. Or maybe... I used to think maybe there's something more going on here. He just really wants to please his mother. Maybe there's more to the story that didn't get recorded. Maybe, maybe Mary is nagging him, and finally he says, oh, all right, I'll go ahead and do this. I'll go ahead and turn water into wine just for you, because I love you, mother. But you can't force Jesus into doing something, can you? So there must be something more going on here. Must be something more to it than that. So let's walk through this passage and... Hopefully we'll see that this passage, uh, we'll see it through fresh eyes and hopefully see it for what it really means, for what it really is. And then we're going to work to apply it. So I'm going to jump around a bit as we try to explain what's, what's really going on here. And going to start in verse 3. So when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. The message is implicit. Jesus do something about this. You can also see from her expectations, uh, from Mary's response in uh, verse 5, when she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. So why would Mary say this to Jesus? Why would she have this request of him? It's because she actually believed that he could do something about it. She believed that he could do something supernaturally. So this wasn't an inappropriate request or statement. This was a statement of faith from someone who believed that Jesus could do something. Mary, of course, remembered the circumstances of her pregnancy. She remembered what the angel had said to her. She remembered uh, the wise men that came. She remembered what Simeon, Simeon and Anna had said to her. She remembered Jesus teaching in the temple as a child. Because of Mary's belief, because of her experiences with Jesus, this wasn't an inappropriate request. 
Mary made this request of Jesus because she believed that he could actually do something. So let's jump ahead to verse 9. And we see this master of the feast mentioned. So who's he? And what's his responsibility? Well, his job was to keep the party going. He wasn't the life of the party, but rather he was the one who was meant to keep the life of the party going, to keep the party going. So the bridegroom and the rest of the wedding party are socializing. His job is to take care of the details, to make sure that everything is running smoothly, everything is going the way that it should go. And as we walk through this, I think that we'll see that this story should have been about this master of the feast. That's who this story should have been about. He's the one that Mary should have gone to to, to tell about the lack of wine. So anyway, his, his job has a special application, and we'll get back to that uh, a little bit later. So we'll talk about him in a minute. So now switch gears for a moment and uh, consider with me maybe the last wedding that you went to. What, what were your thoughts during that wedding? What were you thinking about during that wedding? Well, I think it's different for different people. If you're married happily, if you're happily married, then you probably were thinking, at least at one point, fond memories about your own wedding that you had. If you're not happily married, or if you're, um, if you're, if you're divorced, then you may have not so good memories of that wedding. You may be thinking back not so fondly about a wedding. And if you're single and you want to be married, then it's almost inevitable that you're thinking about your own future wedding, your hopes, perhaps, of what your wedding is going to be like. So what do you think that Jesus was thinking of at this wedding? Well, that's the key to this whole passage and the key to understanding how to apply it to our lives. So when Mary approached Jesus, believed that he was thinking of his future wedding. Now, some of you are saying, wait a second, uh, you're not going all Da Vinci Code on me, are you? And uh, Jesus was never married on earth, I know that. Jesus was, was single all of his life. But the Bible often speaks of the wedding between Jesus and his people. Jesus is often described as the bridegroom, and the church is often described as the bride. So we see that in several places in Scripture. Uh, just a couple of examples of that. The Old Testament book of Jeremiah talks often about the coming Messiah, as the bridegroom, and his people as the bride. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ is the husband and his wife is the church. Jesus referred to himself as the bridegroom in Matthew chapter 9, and then in just a couple of weeks, in John chapter 3, just a couple of weeks from now, we'll see how Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. And finally, we see it in Revelation chapter 19. And this same author of the Gospel of John is the author of of Revelation, and he is receiving a prophecy of what is to come. And in chapter 19 of Revelation, we see the culmination of history as there is another wedding feast, but this time it's not at Cana in Galilee. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So in this moment, in this moment, Mary's statement, they have no wine, I believe interrupted Jesus as he was thinking of his own wedding. You may think that's a bit of a stretch, but I think it's the only explanation that makes sense. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So look at the jars. What, what are the jars for? Well, in the time of Jesus, Jews had to purify themselves from their sin when they made offerings for their sins. So they had to purify themselves. Their sin had made them unclean. And they would use these specific water jars that were set aside only for this purpose, for the purpose of purifying themselves so they could make offering for their sin. Jesus turned the water that would be used for purification of sin into wine. Or to put it another way, Jesus used what was in the purification jars to bring life to this party. Now, follow me for a second. What did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus come to do? Why did he leave heaven? Why did he add humanity to his godhood? Well, he came to rescue us sinners from ourselves. And in our sin, we're unclean, we're impure, we're unholy. Our souls are stained by our sin, and Jesus came to give us life. He came to take away our sin. He came to take away the eternal consequence of our sin, to purify us. And remember what Revelation said about the bride. It said that it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So friends, Jesus is the pure, spotless, holy Lamb of God. And he cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And we're granted to clothe ourselves with fine linen, bright and pure, all because of what Jesus did for us. So Jesus was at a wedding, and he was doing what many others do when they're at weddings. He was looking ahead to his own, to his own wedding. That's the only reasonable explanation for why he would respond to his mother, they have no wine, by saying, my time has not yet come. He was thinking about the time of his own wedding. But see, too, the wedding of Jesus is different from any other wedding. The bridegroom was supposed to supply the wine for the wedding feast. And that came at a cost monetarily. But what did Jesus have to supply for his wedding feast? Well, it isn't wine, and it doesn't cost money. Jesus gave something more costly than wine. He had to give his blood. Wine and blood are often interposed in Scripture. Blood represents wine, and wine often is a stand-in for blood. We'll take the Lord's Supper together in just a little bit, and that's an example. We'll, we'll drink the fruit of the vine as a representation or as a symbol of Christ's blood that was shed for us. But think about the plagues in Egypt as well back in the book of Exodus. Water was turned into blood as a way of helping Israel escape from their physical slavery. And now water is being turned into wine in the jars of purification as a foretelling of Jesus' blood that would be shed to make us pure, to make us holy, to rescue us from slavery. 
So Jesus chose this moment in time, this first sign, this first miracle of his ministry to point forward to his death. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For it's his blood that purifies us, that makes us holy, that gives us new life. It's his blood that gives us freedom from sin, enables us to be identified as his bride clothed in the righteousness of God. So let's stay on this for just, just a bit longer. Do you see that in thinking about his own wedding, that Jesus is necessarily focusing on what it would take to make that wedding happen? His death on the cross wasn't the wedding. His death on the cross was the gateway to the wedding. In order for the wedding to take place, he had to die. So here in this moment, Jesus was thinking ahead to his own death. Even here at the beginning of his ministry, the very first time that he publicly did something miraculous, he's thinking, he's pointing ahead to where his life would end on the cross. He predicted that. He talked about it often. He knew his identity as God. He knew what his purpose was as our Savior. There's at least one thing that makes Christianity different from any other religion. Moses led a movement. He's a great leader, but he died. Buddha died. There's no hope in his death. Confucius died. His words live on, but not him. Gandhi died. There's no hope in him. And of course, Jesus died. But what makes Jesus different? Well, he rose again, and we can have hope in him because we are going to be united with him. He is the bridegroom, and we are his bride. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So before we, we work to apply this any further in our lives, I, I want us to notice the purpose of Jesus' signs. Uh, we often think that the purpose of miracles is, is mainly about physical healing for someone to be healed of some ailment. But I, I think we'll see as we walk through the book of John, we'll see lots of, of miracles. And I think we'll see that uh, there are two purposes, neither of which has to do with physical healing. Although that, that did happen. Jesus did heal people physically. But if, as we'll see, the primary purpose of miracles isn't for physical healing, then perhaps physical wellness isn't the most important work that God wants to do in your life. So let's look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So the first purpose of the miracles that Jesus performed is to point us towards the power, to point us towards the authority of Jesus. He is God in the flesh, and he was glorified when he performed his miracles because it proved his divine nature. It proved his power over the natural world. His glory was seen through his miracles. So one purpose of miracles is to, to bring glory to God, to glorify God. The second purpose of miracles is to encourage belief. So remember that he has new disciples around him, new, new followers around him. And what do they do? It says that they believed in him. 
So this new rabbi on the scene was worthy of following. Jesus performed miracles so that we might believe in him. But God never uh, tells us something just for the sake of belief. There's always more to it than just belief. He wants us to believe, but he also wants us to change the way that we live. So as we go through the book of John, these next few weeks and months, I want you to watch how the disciples change, how, his, how that belief changes them. Changes them to the point of after his death, they are willing to die for him. They're willing to die for what he, what he did, to be persecuted. So I hope we, we now see that what, what at least I thought at one time was just a really odd event. This is just Jesus being quirky. Um, don't really understand Jesus, his ways. But I hope that now we see that this is a beautiful picture of, of who Jesus is and the burdens that he carried, the things that he was thinking of here even at the beginning of his ministry. But what do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? Well, I want to spend the remaining a time that we have talking about how, how we apply something that happened 2,000 years ago, how we allow the Holy Spirit to apply something that happened 2,000 years ago to our lives today. So first, I want us to get back to this master of the feast. Remember that I, I said that he should have been the central character of the story. He should have been the one that Mary went to with the need for more wine. He's the one who's supposed to make sure there's life at the party. The one who was supposed to make sure that everyone was having a great time, to make sure that all, all the details were taken care of, that all of the, the important needs were met at this party. So I would ask, who proved to be the real master of the feast? Who brought life to the party? Who kept it going? Who made sure that all of the details were being taken care of? that all of the needs were being met. Well, of course, Jesus is the real master of the feast. And as we can see from this text, one master leaves you empty while the other fills you up. One master is consumed with less important things while the other addresses your real needs. One is elsewhere when needed while the other is fully attentive and in charge. One is surprised at the life in the, in the party. The other brought life to the party. One master has no power, while the other has all power. So I would ask, who would you rather have as the master of the feast? Then why do we so often put up with and even long for an imposter in our lives? We have fooled into seeing the imposter as able to give us what we need. So I would ask you to consider and think about this morning, what is your imposter? What master do you have in your life that only brings emptiness or only brings frustration? Parents, is it your kids? Are you hoping to find satisfaction and enjoyment in them and, and you only find uh, frustrations or emptiness? You're, you're constantly comparing them to what other kids are doing or what other families are doing. They're not living up, they're not filling that need that you have in your life. Students, maybe it's getting the grade. You work so hard to achieve. Maybe you've experienced failure as your grades don't quite measure up to what you hope they would be. Or maybe they do measure up, but you still don't find 
the satisfaction or enjoyment that you thought you would find in those grades. Maybe your imposter is relationships. You invest in relationship after relationship. You're giving and giving and giving to someone else, and they never uh, quite give as much as what you do. Maybe the imposter is freedom. You love to be able to do the things, uh, do things your way. You don't want anyone telling you what to do. And authority is a dirty word to you. Yet you never find true, lasting satisfaction in your decisions. Well, it could be any, any of those things. It could be any number of other things. It could be finances or possessions or food or sex or retirement savings or travel. But friends, the only way that you'll be left full and satisfied is to do what Mary did and turn to Jesus. He's the real and lasting master of the feast. And second, I want us to see that Jesus is also the real bridegroom. Now, if you're single, or if you're in a, a, a difficult marriage at the moment, then don't, don't miss the point. Uh, marriage was created to glorify God. It's one of the things that points us towards the relationship between God and his people. But it's not the be-all, end-all of our lives. Jesus, who we're talking about today, was never married here on earth. Paul, who wrote a, a significant portion of the New Testament, was never married as well. And just um, as a, a quick aside, little mini-sermon for you. The, the wisdom of the world tells us that being single or being alone is a problem that has to be fixed. Being single or being alone is some, some issue that needs to be fixed. Just look at all the blogs, the books, the websites that are out there on how to fix the problem of being alone or how to fix the problem of being single. So the world proposes that singleness is a problem to be solved by, by marriage or by a relationship. But then the world also tells us that marriage or relationships are bad. Just look at all the articles and all the things that, that tell us how bad marriage is and how we're supposed to fix our marriage and our relationships are not good and, and don't get in a relationship because relationships are bad. So it says fix singleness by getting married, but then relationships are always a mess to be fixed. This is the wisdom of the world. It gets us nowhere. But again, Jesus is the true and better bridegroom. He's the true and better bridegroom. So how does that affect us? How does that make a difference for us today? Well, at a wedding, who's often the center of attention? It's the bride. The bride is often the center of attention. The whole moment actually is set up to focus on her. The, the groom, the groomsmen, the minister are all standing up at front. The music starts, the people stand up, and where do they turn? They turn towards the back to watch as the bride enters the room, the one that everyone wants to see. And friends, has, has anyone here ever seen an ugly bride? I'm, I'm not talking about what she looked like the night before. I'm talking about what she looks like on that day, on her day, at that moment. The wedding ceremony is her moment, and she looks beautiful, especially to the bridegroom. So what was Jesus thinking about when his mother approached him and said, they have no wine? Well, I think we've established he was thinking about his wedding. He was thinking about his death. But I think he was also thinking about you. If you're a believer, 
in Christ. He was thinking about you. And just like a bridegroom anxiously waiting for a glimpse of his bride as she enters the room and is then captivated by her beauty, I would say to you, if you're a believer in Christ, Jesus is captivated by your beauty. Now, for some in the room, you're, you're find that, you'll find that hard to believe. All you can think about when I say that is something in your past. Perhaps uh, one of you have had an abortion. Maybe you have addictions in your past. Maybe it's something else that comes up when I say that. You think, how could I be beautiful to God? For others, when I speak about Jesus finding you beautiful, all you can think about is, is your present sin. You think about your problems with lust or the horrible anxiety that you experience about every little thing in your life you're anxious about. Or you think about that, that anger problem that you have. You, you lose your temper far too quickly and far too easily. Whatever it may be, if you're a follower of Christ, we have to realize that God sees you as his beautiful bride, that all of our sin from the past is no longer held against us. All of our present sin can be forgiven and can be forgotten. All that we have to do is we have to confess that sin. We have to repent of it. We have to turn away from it. We have to seek God's forgiveness. And all that can be true for today, uh, for today for you if you're not a believer. So if you're in this room and you haven't put your trust and your faith in Christ, then God doesn't see you as beautiful, but he can today if you put your faith and your trust in him. So if this seems too good to be true, then let's read uh, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Again, this was written by Paul, a single man. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this is, this is one of the places, again, where the church, the believers in Christ, are referred to as the bride. And this is love. Christ loves you so much that he gave himself up for you that he might purify you, that he might wash you and clean you from all of our sin, that he might present you in splendor, that he might present you perfect in every way. And friends, his righteousness is the beauty of the bride. The beauty of the bride is the righteousness of Christ. So there in his first miracle, he saw you for who you really are, all because of what, of what he's done for us in rescuing us from our sin. So if that doesn't sink in, I, I would uh, bring up this passage from Zechariah. Zechariah was an Old Testament prophet, and he's receiving a vision from the Lord. And he says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. So the high priest is the, the highest office, the highest religious office in Israel. So think of someone who is, is um, the most religious person the closest follower of God, the highest office in Israel. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, 
Is not Joshua someone that I have rescued from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. I think that if we understand what this means, this this will either melt your heart or it'll make you feel unworthy or, or both. But brother and sister believer who's here this morning, you, like Joshua, are the bride of Christ. And just as Satan stood condemning Joshua, he stands condemning you. We stand in filthy garments on our own, in our own strength, and what we have done in ourselves. But Jesus clothed Joshua in purity, in in his purity, just as he does with you. So this event, this first miracle of Jesus gives us faith in Scripture. It's not just some weird story about Jesus. In this story of the first miracle, we see the real Jesus. From the very beginning, he knew what his purpose was. He knew that he came to save sinners from ourselves. He came to purify us from our sin. So once you see Jesus for who he is, once you see him as the master of the feast, Won't you see Jesus as the true bridegroom? Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have done for us. On our own, in our own strength, in our own efforts, we stand filthy before you, and it's only because of what Jesus has done. There's nothing that we have done that we can boast in. It's all because of what Jesus did for us that we can stand before you, that we can even see ourselves in any way as your bride, as one who has been made lovely, who's been made beautiful, who's been made holy and righteous, who's been purified. Father, help us to see that you are the true master of the feast. Help us to make you the master of our lives. Help us to turn to you in all of our needs. Help us to see you as the true bridegroom and not to seek anything else, not to attach ourselves to anything else that's less than, that's going to leave us wanting. So Father, as we, as we take the Lord's Supper in just a moment, as we observe that together as a church family, pray that we would remember what you have done for us that we would seek to confess our sins, that we would recognize that we cannot do anything on our own, but it's all because of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.